The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Gracious Father, we are thankful for the chance to talk to you. It is not a right of ours that comes by our nature. It is a gift given to us because you have opened the curtain and anchored us in your presence by the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus. He has acquired for us and secured for us access to your throne of grace and we can come and talk to you and call you Father. We can ask you to meet us. We can ask you to carry us, to heal, to redeem. And you willingly hear and desire to do us good. We may ask incorrectly or we may seek things that are not best for us, but you, a Father, you know how to give good gifts. We would not give to our children Snakes and stones, you know how to give good gifts. You're better than us. So whatever we ask for, Lord, would you hear it, would you sift it, and would you refine it and give good to us? This morning I ask, as you hear us now here, pray and open up your word and look at it, would you be at work to give us good from it? That's what we come and we ask you for. We may, we may not know, but you do. Pour it out. Lord, as we look at this passage today, there is a certain degree of hardness in it, and I pray that that would rest on us properly as we deal with and look at a disaster, a calamity, grief, you cause us to see it in the right light, to see it through the cross. And so not if we are Christians, Lord, those of us who here belong to you, that we would not see it in in a condemning light. We would see it through the cross, but that we would not dismiss it and we would see it as about us too. Help us to see it properly. We need you for that. We are prone to one ditch or the other, to dismiss it or to be condemned, but see us... See us through it, Lord, down the middle. Help us to understand rightly your word. Produce a change in us that is honoring to you and that is needed in us, whatever that may be. We trust you. We turn to you. You are God. You are our shelter in the storm. Before the mountains were formed, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. We trust you. We love you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And there in that chapter we find the first fallout from the the shocking events from the first 11 verses. Last week as we looked at those verses we saw Israel gathering an army to fight against the Philistines and there are two battles there. In the opening battle they suffered a minor defeat. 
few thousand dead. But they wondered, what's going on here? Why has the Lord pondered? If they, had, if they had sought the answer and turned to the Word of God or asked the prophet that everybody knows is a prophet, Samuel, he could have told them, they, they didn't ask him, but he could have told them and pointed them to the Word of God that explains clearly that their sin has led them to this. But they don't ask, they instead hatch a plan. They know what they want and they have the perfect idea as to how to get that. They want military success and they know where to find omnipotent reinforcement. And so they go to Shiloh and take out of the sanctuary the Ark of God. And the Ark, as we talked about last week briefly, is is a box, two foot by three foot or so box, that is closely associated by God when he designed it, closely associated with his presence, and therefore his power. It's usually kept in the sanctuary, though when Israel moved around during the wanderings in the desert, it, it traveled with them, and his power was displayed in association with this box, and they think, we need power, let's go take the ark to ourselves. And they bring it to the battlefield, thinking, surely, this is the ark, as they say up in verse 4, this is the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. He is in covenant with us, surely he will deliver us. He is the the commander of the hosts of heaven with omnipotent power. Surely he will harness that power for us and deliver, fight for us and win. But he didn't. He didn't fight for the people and they were crushed in battle. And the ark of the Lord of hosts was taken by the Philistines now back to their place, taken out of the land, taken into exile. A, A shocking humiliating event for the nation and as we talked about last week even more so for the lord because the very thing that they thought he could not stomach the humiliation of his own reputation surely now the philistines look at him as a weak god yes able to harm the egyptians but not us we triumphed over him or maybe a faithless god yes in covenant with these people until he isn't and he abandons them Surely he wouldn't let his reputation be soiled like that, but he does. He embraces it deliberately and lets himself be defeated. Why? Because, as we talked about last week, he is more concerned to be honored among his people and to not let them use him for their own agenda. He will not be used by them to feed their ideas, but he will father them instead. Shape them and conform them and discipline them And if that means he has to be humiliated and troubled and carted off, he'll do that. That's what we saw last week. And now we come to verses 12 to 22. Fallout from the battle reported now back at the city of Shiloh. So we are dealing essentially with the same sort of thing, the battle and its its outcome, but from a different angle. Not so much emphasizing what has happened there at at the battlefield or what God has endured, but now turning it to see what the people whom he abandons, what, what's going on with them back at Shiloh. So same but a, d- a different aspect of it this morning. So we're going to look at that in a little more detail as we read chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. I'm going to read those and pass back through it to make sure we understand it and then make two observations. 1 Samuel 4, verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. 
for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, Glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 1 Samuel 4. Shiloh is some 20 miles or so from the battlefield at Aphek, and so it would have taken several hours for the runner to get there with the news, but he does arrive, and he comes on the same day of the battle, and his appearance is a message all by itself, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. Anybody who saw him would have recognized that he has dressed himself in a manner befitting someone who has met a calamity someone who has seen great sorrow. And as soon as they saw him, they knew the answer. The only thing they would have been wondering was the degree of calamity. But as he comes and he enters the city, he would have run right by Eli, who's sitting on his chair by the city gate. Verse 18 clarifies that. He's by the gate. He is the high priest, but he also is, as we see, he's one of the judges of Israel, perhaps one of the minor judges that we see throughout the book of Judges. And so it's appropriate for him to be sitting in the place of judgment. Great irony there that he's about to experience judgment as he sits in the place of judgment. But he's seated there by the gate. We can assume that he's alone probably because it's late in the day. And the messenger goes right by him into the city. Now notice Eli there. He's sitting by the road watching and worried. He's anxious his heart's agitated, He's nervous, fearful, probably sad. And you should ask, why? I mean, he's the high priest. Doesn't he know that the ark is omnipotent? Everybody else seems to. Doesn't he know? And didn't he see the, the ark carried out of the city by his sons as the people roared in the coming triumph, surely like the camp roared when the ark arrived, he should know there's power in that ark. People should be afraid of the Philistines. Why is Eli afraid? Because he knows. 
He knows what's coming. And has known it for a long time. And he sits there gripped and afraid and anxious and watching through blind eyes. What symbolism. He sits there, a sad figure, 98 years old, very heavy. Which is a comment on his weight and more. Because the word for heavy is also the word for glory. Same word. You can see in it why. There's, in, in glory there is a heaviness, a, a weightiness, a substance. Something that is, that is a dominating factor. So the glory of God is something that is weighty and, and big and impressive. And the whole problem in this and throughout these chapters is that Eli, the high priest, and his sons whom he has allowed have taken the weightiness off of God and have acquired it for themselves as they eat the choice offerings and dishonor God and claim the position of power and lord over the people and abuse them knowingly, blatantly, they have made themselves heavy and robbed God of glory. And the glory just walked out of the city, carried on the shoulders of Hophni and Phinehas. And he knows what's coming. And he sits there, blind, doesn't see the runner as he goes right by, but he hears the commotion in the city as the wailing erupts. 30,000 dead. The ark captured. The Philistines with no army between them 20 miles from here. He hears the uproar and, and wonders, what, 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 what? He knows, but what? And the, the runner comes to him and you can hear through, you can hear through the runner's repeated language of him trying to communicate through, to a greatly emotionally disturbed 98 year old man who is blind. I, I'm the one who came from the battle. I, I'm the messenger. I fled from the battlefield today. What happened, my son? A great defeat. And your sons, they're both dead. And taken is the ark of God. At which Eli's heart breaks. And he falls over backwards. Off of his seat of judgment. Judged as God tears down the high and mighty house of Eli. He breaks his neck and dies. And the briefest of obituaries, he had been a judge for 40 years. The end. And then the scene changes because there's more. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, she's pregnant. And when she hears the news of, what's emphasized again, of the taking of the ark of God. That's the first thing. Front-loaded. And the news of the death of the high priest. And her husband, her husband's last. She, this isn't about her husband. This isn't about the calamity of losing one's spouse. She hears the news and is shocked into a traumatic labor. And she gives birth, but she herself is dying. And the attendants try to comfort her with, you've, you've had a son, but she's just too despondent to respond other than to name this one. And there are a couple of important contrasts here. Notice how the woman in verse 20 tells her she has born a son, and then the writer switches words in verse 21 from son to child, which is the word, we've talked about it before, the word translated boy or minor or junior. 
to describe someone who is under. There's a contrast being set up here between the boy, Samuel, and this boy, Ichabod. The the other boy born in this book, named by a mother in joy, named, his name is God, name of the Lord, born by a woman in grief and sorrow, named, where is glory? Tremendous contrast being set up here. She calls him Ichabod. And so that we don't miss why, twice we are told, back to back, she named him Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Literally, the glory has gone into exile from Israel because the ark was taken and because of the father-in-law and husband. Why though again, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been taken. Catastrophe. That's the text. The fallout, all in one day, 30,000 Israelites die, the high priest dies, his two sons die, and his daughter-in-law dies, and the ark is taken. As he said he would, God has indeed done something that makes the ears of all who hear it tingle in alarm and amazement and fear and sorrow. Again, it's not because all of the death. It's because of the ark. The ark is what's emphasized in the text. It's repeatedly emphasized by those who are dying as the cause of their dying and as the thing that most grieves them as they die. And it's the thing that we are left with in our last sentence the ark of God taken. That's where it all ends, which is to say this is about God and His glory leaving, being taken away. And people in great grief and sorrow at the loss of it. That's what the passage is about. And I'm going to break that down now with two observations. So we're talking about God and His glory leaving and people grieved by that. And as I prayed, I realized there is a, a heaviness to this. This is, not, this is not a happy passage. From start to end, there, there's no joy. There's, there's no happily ever after in these verses. Now, I did last week, I, I want to... I want to pull in and remind you that there is something last week that I talked about that God has gone into exile which is a great mercy to them because of what he's doing with that he's working something to change them rather than sending them into exile he's taken that upon himself and we talked last week about how that points us to Christ we need to remember that as I prayed I want us to see this through the lens of the cross if you are a Christian there is therefore no condemnation on you because of Christ So don't be condemned by this, but the other ditch is to say, that's not about me, thank goodness. Yes, it is. So, so sit in the middle, not condemned and, and not no longer listening. Sit in the middle here and, and hear what God may say to you. He has said something to me, uh, significant through this. 
So here's the first observation. When grieved and dishonored, God disciplines and even departs. When grieved and dishonored, God disciplines and even departs. Clearly, Eli, the daughter-in-law, the messenger of the whole city, they've encountered a grievous, terrible event. And without denying that any kind of a military defeat, especially one of this magnitude, would have caused grief to them, the death of one's husband, one's father-in-law, one's son, those are grievous things, certainly. And they are connected to the grief for the woman in particular. It's listed there. But without denying that, our attention is repeatedly focused on the main issue in the report, on the ark. It's in the place of prominence, the last place, right right before we switch to Eli, the messenger tells him this happened and this happened and that happened and lastly the ark was taken. And at that, it says at that, he fell over and died. It's about the ark. Verse 19, when... When she heard the news of the taking of the ark and the death of her men, yes, but the ark is dominant. She named him Ichabod because of the taking of the ark. Verse 22, the glory is departed for the ark has been taken. That's the focus all throughout. Our attention is being drawn to the ark and the fact that it was taken. And again, remembering last week we saw some of the mercy of God in that. The focus this week is on what happens to and how those people are affected by the exiling of the ark the the problem the the grieving issue that they suffer because of that the problem with the ark leaving is that with it god's glory leaves it says the glory has departed from israel because of the ark and the association with the presence of god Throughout the the years leading up to this, and even throughout the the two battle sequences, we see the disciplining of God, Him attempting to turn them. But what we found here at the end is is this hard final note about God's presence leaving. It's worse than than just a a correcting discipline. There is a note of, of hardness, a note of finality here. The whole point is to emphasize the tragedy of losing God's glorious presence and to show it to be the death of a person, the death of a people. If God's presence is not among us, if God's presence is not on you, it is the death of a person, the death of a people. And we need to hear that because we so rarely face that. It is, it is not our, our common Christian language, our common Christian existence. Especially in America. We more commonly don't even notice the departure of the glory of God. Because life works out for us not bad, okay. Most commonly, I still have a job. Most commonly, I still eat. Most commonly, everybody's still alive. Most commonly, we just kind of move on, never noticing the departure of the glorious presence of God. So let's think about that. What what do I mean by the glorious presence of God? Well, God is present everywhere. 
in all of his creation, God is always there. So in the one hand, on the one hand, God does not actually leave Shiloh. He's always there. He's, he's always here. In talking about his glorious presence, what I'm trying to communicate, and what's trying to be communicated by the passage, is the glory has departed from Israel. Is something like this. His wonderful, beautiful, amazing self present for blessing is gone. So something about God's wonder, something about God's beauty, something amazing about Him, something good and blessing about Him has left. An example. We could talk about the attributes of God and their glorious nature. So, the power of God. Consider the glorious power of God, the the weighty, heavy, substantial, beautiful, omnipotent, circumstance-changing, life-changing power of God to bless His people and defend His name. That's what's glorious about His power. That can be removed. He's still powerful. He's just not doing and showing those things about Himself. His glorious wisdom. We can consider the, the depth and the breadth of God's command of every detail and the wise way, the, the remarkable, glorious, beautiful, awesome way that God weaves together all the circumstances of life and orders every single event to accomplish a marvelous and beautiful and good plan. Oh, His wisdom is so glorious. And look how He shows that to us and pours it on our lives unless He doesn't and withdraws from us. Now, He is still wise He's just not showing it, not displaying it. See, the line I'm trying to draw there is, it's not that God ceases to be wise or ceases to work together all the events of life. It's just that we don't see them and don't experience the blessing of them. We experience His absence. If His glorious presence were to withdraw... This, it is hard for us to understand the gravity of this. I'll say this sentence, without God's presence, we have nothing. And the people in this story are are depicting without God's presence, nothing. And they die. And I, I can say that, but I know I'm speaking to you and I'm pleading with you to believe that because you don't. Where we live without God's presence, we still have so much. It is easy to just slide on by. Without God's presence, men and women, we have nothing. Without God's glorious presence, we can do nothing. It would be heartbreak to leave, to lose this, for Him to, to withdraw it off of our lives and leave us to ourselves. And 
what we see in this section is that God is willing to do that. To step back, to use New Testament language, to be grieved, and therefore to withdraw. He will do that. In fact, He must eventually, if He is who He says He is, He must be motivated to defend the line of His honor if He is God, if He is good, if He is just, and if He is righteous. There must be a place at which He says, no more. Ironically, he is more willing to be dishonored among the pagans than he is among his own people. I will let the Philistines laugh at me. I will not let you. Why? Because we, his people, Old Testament or New, are supposed to be the ones who know. And are supposed to be the ones who imitate, who show who God is. To others out there, and for our own good to one another. He does not want a lie about Him circulating out there. does not want a lie about Him circulating in here. At some point, He will defend His honor and say, that's not who I am. I will not let that go. If that's, if that's the game, I'm out. It's the warning to us that we must watch for the tragedy of losing God's presence in your life, Christian, individually, or in us as a people, in a a congregation. What a tragedy it would be to have a congregation over which is written Ichabod. I I heard uh, somebody telling me a story, not about this, but just some other conversation I had this last week about somebody talking about a, a church plan to grow a church to 1,500 people. I thought, oh my. What a tragedy. It's the admission, <laughs> it's, it's the admission of the problem here. We have got a plan and we know how we're going to do it. You, it's not possible, you know, to grow a church, to decide to grow a church to 1,500 people. It's possible to assemble 1,500 people. And you can make a plan as to how to draw 1,500 people into one place, but you cannot build a church of 1,500 people. God can, and God does. Often, look around the nation, often. But to devise a plan as to how we're going to do it is to admit we are in 1 Samuel 4. Woe to us if we ever do that. But we must watch that individually, that we not grieve the Spirit and drive Him away from us. It leaves us to our own power and our own devices, building at most with wood, hay, and stubble, accomplishing nothing. That's the warning to us, the tragedy of getting to that place. And so, what we need to think about is before that place, what happens? And looking here, we say, what has happened before the ark departs, what has happened before that is a series of discipline over a long period of time. For God to be saying over decades... 
to a people for God to be saying over decades to a people turn back listen come and for them to say no the people resisted Hophni and Phineas. don't take the fat off the meat it's the Lord's no, give it. No. The people told Eli, you know what your sons are like? Yeah, I know. It's kind of bad, isn't it? The unnamed prophet came to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Samuel then came to him. This is what the Lord says. And Eli's response to it, we'll come to more of this later, but Eli's response to it seems to be nice and isn't. If here, if here is the, the place where God says, I'm done, before there, there is, there is a calling of, of disciplining. So what we have to watch for is, is not, you don't, not, not the cliff. Oh, I'm falling over the cliff. But watch for the signs that say the cliff is out there coming. Watch for the discipline of God. So we need to think about the discipline of God. So I ask you, do you think about discipline as a parent spanking a child. It is that, but it's more than that. That, that is discipline. Sin, whack. That's discipline. But that is not all, not even most, discipline. We need to think a little more broadly, because if we only think of that, then we are perhaps open to dismissing this as, well, yeah, there's Eli and there's their sin. Yeah, for sure, that deserves a... But me, I'm, I'm not there, and we might miss something. Or to think of discipline as, as hard and in, a, in an angry sort of context, that a spanking is not pleasant. Let's widen our, our thinking about discipline because discipline is also a parent calling Junior, not just spanking, but calling Junior back to the bathroom and saying, hang up the towel. I, I watched a parent one time. I learned this from watching another parent. It wasn't about towels. It was about lights. Standing in the hallway, Junior, you left a light on your room. Why don't you turn it off? You're standing right there. No. I, I could go flip, but I, the point is to teach you to do it. Turns the light off, walks back. That's also discipline. It's also discipline when a parent takes junior or friends, each other, and say, we, we're going to get all the way to the, the top of this peak, this hike, even when about halfway up we get tired and want to quit. No, we're going to go all the way. Through the grumbling, pressing on. It's hot. I'm thirsty. I know. One more step. One more step. That's also disciplining. Because essentially, at the heart of what discipline is, is somebody seeing a problem in one for whom they have responsibility and care, seeing a problem and discerning, how do I confront the problem and reshape it towards good? And maybe that's what's needed. But maybe something else is needed. 
So it's not, it's important that we understand discipline to not always be about harsh confrontation of wickedness. It is sometimes the shaping of God for our, our fallenness, our sloppiness, our laziness. And yeah, there's some sin in there somewhere, but there's also just weakness that he's attempting to shape as a wise father. So when you think of it like that, God is constantly disciplining us. Having saved you by Christ's cross, He now is committed to you, to conforming you to Christ's image. And He is always then about addressing what the issue is in your life and reshaping it. Maybe that's needed. But more commonly, I think, He works the circumstances of life to lean us, to direct us, to to incline us. To shape us. It can be painful. It can be gentle and unseen. But what I'm urging you here to do is to give attention to where God is at work in your life to shape you. Because if you don't, what happens if Junior, come back, turn the light off, Why don't you turn it off? Because I want you to. Mm, No. It goes out in the yard. Now we have a problem. Now we're getting towards. Right? To, To respond like that to God invites Him to move further down the road. To move further down the road is tragic. Now, He's... You're a Christian, if you are, and not everybody here is, but if you are, you're a Christian. And there is no condemnation on you. But brothers and sisters, there can be pain on you. Remember how we even read in 1 Corinthians in regards to the Lord's Supper, how God took the lives of some Christians in the church? Christians in the church, He took their lives because of their improper practice of communion. It does not say that He took their salvation. He took their lives. And short of that, there is a variety of pain that God may bring to us who will not heed His warning, His gracious and loving desire to shape us, to work out of us dishonoring, Which is what you should want anyway, because to honor the Lord and to walk with Him and to know Him is your life. It's life for you. So I ask you, look at your life and look for His discipline, or maybe another way of asking that is, look for your own dishonor. Look for your own placing God in second place. Look for your own attempting to make God useful for your agenda. Look for that. And look for it in places that may not appear obvious. Look for it in the midst of other people's sin against you. Look for it in the midst of the the sorrows and the hardship that comes to you in life from living in a fallen world. 
realize that you can sin even when other people sin against you. Sometimes that may be pointing out something in you. Look there. Is there something that God's wanting to do in your heart, in your life, to redirect you, to discipline you, to shape you? And if you're wondering, how do I turn back? What, what do I do about that? How do I respond? It's going to take us into the second point. So the second observation is this. Grief leading to repentance is needed to experience His presence again. Grief leading to repentance is needed. And that leading to repentance part is important, not just grief. To experience his presence again. The problem in the passage is, is obvious. God's withdrawing and, and doing something painful to these folks. But how do they avoid that? How would they have avoided that? Or, or how could they reverse it? And, and how will they eventually in chapter 7 reverse it? Well, we got to look at some of the context because there's just in this section, it's hard to find, but it's, it's hinted at. But first, the context. I mentioned last week, if they had asked, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? As I said last week, they could have found chapter and verse answer to that. If they'd actually asked the prophet or asked the Bible, the Word of God, they could have looked at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17, it's also in Deuteronomy. And in, what those sections are in, in the Bible are the laying out of the covenant curses. And if you look at, and they are laid out in a, in a progressive intensity. So 26 verse 17 says, If you will not listen to me, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. So why were we struck down before our enemies? Verse tells us, if it asked. But the very next verse, 26 verse 18 says, And if in spite of this, me striking you down, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. You hear the escalation? The sevenfold escalation, which doesn't mean that he's going to strike down seven times as many men. It means sevenfold. The number seven in the scripture is often a number of perfection. I'm going to, I'm going to make it perfectly intensified. Does that repeatedly? But what was the point? If you don't listen to me, I'm going to wipe you out? No, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to strike you. And if you still don't listen to me, I'm going to strike you again in different ways. And if you still don't listen to me, what's the point? He wants them to listen. That's the whole goal. is not to eliminate them, to draw them back to listening to the Word. To cause them to listen to His voice. That would undo the discipline cycle and would turn them back into the blessing cycle. To listen to His voice and to follow Him. That's in the context. That's why over the centuries of the judges, God has been working. And now here He has this first battle. And then He has the second battle. He's attempting by ever-escalating intensity to turn them to listen. 
It's also hinted at in the passage itself when as this this daughter-in-law is dying, she gives this name to this boy, where is glory, which is a poignant question. Meaning in her mind, it's gone. God's, God's glory is gone, left us as the ark left us. But in, in addition to seeing here the hopelessness of life without God's presence, as we've already talked about, we're also supposed to read this and pause and think about the two boys. One of which, born in sorrow, where is glory? One of which, born in joy, name of the Lord. One of which born in a house that is being torn down because of its unfaithfulness. One of which is being lifted up as priestly prophet who will be judge. Turning the people from the house of Eli to this prophet, priest, and can we say king. Where is glory? The ark just left. There is no more glory in the land. Oh, yes, there is. There is a prophet who has the word of the Lord. Turn to it. Where is glory? Seek it. That is a clear marker pointing us towards the other prophet, priest, and king. We ask, where is glory? It is to turn us to Christ, who is the one who brings us the word and his glory in the flesh. We are to turn to him. To turn from one house to the other. To turn from wordlessness to the word. And what does that look like? Well, we could ask from the passage, what does it not look like? Because there is something, I, I think, something incredibly sad about Eli. incredibly sad about Eli because of what's going on in here and then what happens to him. He knows the whole time for decades and doesn't do anything about it. And it all falls on him in judgment. It's tragic. He has heard about it from people. He's heard about it from the whole nation. He's heard about it from an unnamed prophet. He's heard about it from Samuel himself. And his seeming response of, what did he say back, back a little bit ago when Samuel walked out and told him what God said? I'm going to strike your two sons dead on the same day. I'm going to do something that's going to make the ears of the people tingle. Samuel's, Eli's attitude is seemingly appropriate. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. What humility. Wrong. What happened in Nineveh? When the prophet came to them and said, Forty days more and God will strike this place and destroy it all. What did they do? It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. No. From top to bottom, they repented in sackcloth and ashes, king to peasant. 
Oh God, no! And because he'd said so, he struck him anyway. Nope. He relented and didn't strike them. Just like Jonah knew he was going to do. You realize that's, that's the point of the book? Jonah's hacked off because he knows. The reason I'm going to them with a word of judgment is because you want them to repent and I just bet they're going to. Gah! As, as a professor I had one time long ago said, when a prophet pronounces doom, the appropriate response is always repentance. Never seemingly humble resignation. Jonah knows that. Nineveh knows that. Eli never repents. But he grieves over it to his grave. Grief is not enough. Put it in the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There is worldly grief that produces death, and there is godly grief leading to repentance that produces salvation without regret. Jot down that passage and look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians that was filled with the word of the Lord and grief-inducing confrontation of their sin. And he says, verse 9, I rejoice in that, that grieve them. He says, I rejoice in that, not so that you were grieved, but that you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss from us. In other words, this letter that grieved you, it doesn't end up being bad for you. It ends up being good for you. It's not a loss. It's a gain, what you receive from us. For, verse 10, why was it of benefit for them? For godly grief, which God's rebuke from my pen produced. That's what he's saying. That's not in the text, but that's what he's saying. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. So wind it backwards. Paul's saying that if I had written to you a letter pointing out your sin and it had grieved you, but not such that you repented, just grieved you, I would have left you in a place of death and that would have been really sad for me. would have been sorrowful for you and in the end would have been very sorrowful for you. But thankfully, it's not what happened. God worked so that the confrontation of the world, word produced godly grief, produced repentance, produces salvation without regret. Glory. That's the point. Grief leading to repentance is needed to experience His presence again. Not just grief. Repentance. Are you grieved over your sin? When you hunt and when you think and when you stop and consider, or maybe when it jumps at you in your face, what I was asking you to consider a few minutes ago, where is God looking to shape you, to conform you? Do you look at that, and is there a grief in you that as Second Corinthians 7 goes on to describe what godly grief and repentance looks like? An eagerness to clear one's name, which does not mean I'm arguing defensively. I didn't do it, not me, I'm innocent. 
It means there's the problem. I want to address that and fix that so that it is not a problem anymore. Repentance, very narrowly understood, is a change of attitude. And you know an attitude has changed if the behavior, if the speech changes. And if it doesn't change, you cannot say the attitude has changed. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's a godly grief, it will produce difference. And he talks about it in that chapter. 2 Corinthians 7. This is not a sorrow that is sorry for the consequences. It's not, it's not a grief that you will be known as a such and such person. My reputation is diminished because I am a gossip. Oh no. It's the sorrow over the gossiping and the dishonor that it does to God and the elevation of self and a desire to remove that and elevate Him again to first place and to follow Him obediently. That desire in the heart then leads to a life of attack against the behavior. Or the change has not happened. You can look at the sorrow over your sin in your life and you can, re- you can understand, is it leading to repentance or not? Am I eager to fight for change or not? Am I eager to clear my name? Am I eager to, to live following Christ, submitted to Him? Or have I set that thing aside and said, oh no, that is too bad that that is me? What grief. Eli is a a pitiful figure. Warned repeatedly and never turning. So I plead with you, men and women, receive from God maybe His just His hints. Maybe they are harder confrontations. Maybe they are grievous afflictions. Receive them from Him as as calls to you to repent and then turn. Turn to His Word submitted. That much I I can say and I can describe, but we have to end on a point of God help. Because if we are careful... All the Bible does is tell us to repent and tell us what it looks like, but it never tells us how. Because repentance is a gift. Do you realize that? Repentance is a gift from God. What we are to do constantly, we who live dependent on God, just like change is a gift from God, sanctification is a gift from God. You you don't make yourself more loving. You can't reach into your heart and redo it. 
You can't make yourself actually grieved over your sin. You can see your sin as wrong. You can see what the behavior should be, what the attitude should be. You can see a God who is glorious in the place that He should be. And you can say, God changed my heart. And that's the place we must end on. God changed my heart. God make me repentant. God grieved me over my grievous approach to you. All throughout the Bible, we find interesting statements. Sometimes they are, you may recall from way back, if you were here years and years ago, preaching through Ephesians, where we come to chapter 4, and there is a, a passive command there. Be made new. Be made new. That's a, that's a command. That's passive. Be made new by someone else. How do I do that? Well, what we do to receive the making new from God, what we do to receive the repentant heart from God, is we go to the means that God gives us, to His Word, to His people, crying out, God, give grace. I am not God. God is God. And God must give grace to change. It is so intellectually puzzling the first time around. I'm commanded to do something that's God's work. It should, if you put that, it should show you, you are required to be someone that you cannot make yourself to be. We are so fallen in our sin. But gloriously with God, all things are possible. So we go to His Word and say, this is what I am to be, and I am not it, and I cannot make my heart get there. God, help! And graciously, He will pour it out on you. We are people dependent on a sovereign and good God. He is good. He is God. We must pray and hope for, as he says twice in the book of Acts, as he says in 2 Timothy, that he would grant repentance, that he would give us that which he requires from us, that which is needed in us, a heart that is grieved not just knows it should be grieved. Grieved leading to repentance. If you want it, cry out to Him and ask Him to give it. Dependently, filled with hope, God, draw near. I am open. I'm done fighting. Draw near. May we not be like Eli, who saw what should be and saw what was coming, grieved his whole life, and never changed. Let me pray. God, we are people 
We are frail and broken, helpless people. The Bible is alarmingly clear that it is not in our power to shape ourselves up and make ourselves right. We are dependent on your grace for that. And thank you for being a God of grace who saves by grace and not by our works. Who sanctifies by grace and not by our works. Lord, thank you for that. Work it into us now. Address individual people here with particular areas of life that you want to conform them in, reshape them in. Grieve them over it and draw them to a place of change and repentance. Change their hearts over it. Change their behaviors. Lord, we pray that for the honor of your name among your people for the good of your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.